Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Yesha Yadav, professor of law at Vanderbilt University. We'll be discussing her article, The Broken Bond Market, which she co-authored with Jonathan Brogard, professor of finance at the University of Utah. I have a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Yesha, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Andrew, thank you so very much for having me. It's such a pleasure. I mean, I should say that this podcast is, is just a wonderful addition to the law and business a scholarly world, and you do a great deal for disseminating wonderful ideas and cool new scholarship to everyone. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. And thank you for, for joining today. I'm, I'm glad to work with you to contribute this paper to the podcast. In this paper, you compare two forms of investment instruments, corporate bonds as investments that are rooted in contract, and then corporate shares as investments that are rooted in property and and ownership. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how these distinct claims on the corporation shape the investor protections that either bondholders or shareholders have. What are these groups of investors being protected from when we talk about investor protection? And are the risks that they are being protected from perhaps different between holders of debt and holders of equity? Andrew, thank you so much for asking these questions. I think they go to the heart of what makes a corporate capital structure work. In general, when we look at corporate claims, it's really equity that gets the lion's share of attention. And we have an entire canon that is devoted to understanding the implications of equity, understanding the risks that protections that equity claims afford, the fiduciary duties, the appraisal rights, the, the judges, and so on and so forth that are devoted to enforcing these entitlements that uh, we have an entire canon literature that is devoted to that. So we have a very good understanding, I think, of what exactly that shareholders are trying to achieve through their claims and how to protect those claims in a way that can most optimally allow them to allocate capital within the economy more broadly. Unfortunately, that understanding is just not present in the case of the bond market. Bonds and the bond claim is is a woefully neglected claim. And part of the reason is that it doesn't seem to get the attention it deserves because it comes from a kind of contractual model in which the company and the bond investor are supposed to essentially regulate their interaction with one another. But arguably, as this paper points out, Bondholders are even more subject to risks than shareholders are. Bondholders are subject to the risks, as everyone is really, of managerial misconduct, agency costs in the very traditional sense that arise because managers can take your money and use it for all sorts of nefarious and greedy purposes. They can be incompetent. And so we need bondholders to craft a contract that protects them against shoddy managers. But in addition to that, Bondholders also suffer from a new kind of agency cost, which comes from shareholders themselves. Shareholders, as the literature discusses, are minded to use bond capital to allow the corporation to take larger risks than it might otherwise should or want to, right? So shareholders are traditionally seen as being in the business of pushing a company to use debt capital to take larger risks than it should. The cost of that risk-taking can fall on the creditors first and foremost because shareholders, of course, know that they'll be wiped out. So why not enjoy the fruits of that risk in the meantime? And so Richard Squire, for example, has written extensively on 
the opportunism that shareholders can exhibit, terrific body of literature that he's produced. But here, the salient point is that bondholders are subject to two kinds of agency costs from managers as well as shareholders, and the bond contract is designed to protect against that. But unfortunately, given the nature of literature and the law in this area, bondholders are just severely neglected in the attention we give them to understand exactly how these contracts and the protections they provide work in practice. If I'm an investor in corporate securities, there are maybe two big things that I want. One is I want to be protected. I want to be protected from the sorts of agency costs that you just talked about. But I also want liquidity. I want the ability to quickly trade my securities for cash, for whatever reason I might want to be able to engage in those liquid transactions. One of the benefits of a bond is that it is theoretically easier to customize the investor protections contained within that bond. But you point out that the flexibility, the a tailorability of investor protection that comes with bonds has an inverse relationship with liquidity, with tradability. What do you mean by that? This really goes to the heart of what we describe as being the reason why the bond market is broken and why bondholders suffer endemically as a factor and as a fact of their claim. What we mean here is that in public markets, the general expectation is that you should be protected from the bad behavior of the companies in which you're investing. In addition, as you say, Andrew, that you should be able to trade your claim. That is the reason why we're in public securities markets. But in bond markets, that relationship doesn't sit easily. In other words, you can't get both investor protection and liquidity at the same time. We argue in this paper is that the more bondholders work diligently to customize their contract, the more carefully they create a map of the risks that they face and craft contracts that can protect them against those risks. The more carefully and diligently they do that, the less liquid their claim becomes. And that's really because claims become less standard. They become less comparable to those issued by peers. They become less comparable to those issued by the bond issuer itself in prior issues. In addition, the claim can become more complicated. It can become more opaque. It can become harder to understand. The clauses can be more layered in how they apply. For example, in the case of restricting dividends, and how that restriction should be drafted can become more complicated. And with that complexity, investors have to work harder to analyze the content of the claim that can add cost and time and delay and opacity, of course, to that understanding, which makes the claim harder to price in some ways, right? And all of that means that the harder we work to tailor, the lower the liquidity of the claim. And what we show in this paper is that the bond market in its structure has adjusted to this really sad bargain that bondholders face, that they have to choose between investor protection and control. And what we show is the bond market today is really broken because it's unable to trade properly. It's a very illiquid market. And also the investor protections in these claims don't work as well as they should. That is the crux of the paper that you're getting to here, which is that investors cannot have investor protection and liquidity at the same time in bond public markets. There's this trade-off here between liquidity and investor protection. Could you talk a little bit about maybe the net effects of 
that trade-off, how does it affect the pricing of bonds, perhaps in comparison to equity pricing? Uh, And what's maybe the scale of this problem? How much outstanding corporate debt is there? And how might that relate to the size of the U.S. economy or the size of the equity market? Let me take the second question first, Andrew. It's a really important question, which is that the bond market is at the heart of our economy, right? We underestimate it. It's under the radar in some ways, but this is the engine that powers corporate America in many ways. The bond market today is stands at around $10 trillion outstanding. What is remarkable about this market is that it has grown almost at a record rate since the pandemic. When March 2020 hit, the bond market appeared predictably to experience just a catastrophic crash, as one might expect. However, very soon afterwards, as the Fed promised support to the bond market, suddenly what happened was this market became extra juiced. Companies raised over a trillion dollars in corporate debt at that time, and this included lower ranked credits. And this was a record-breaking year in terms of the money that was raised. And That record has continued into 2021 when the bond market, again, has been a real cushion, a buffer for companies trying to revive their fortunes following the pandemic and a critical channel by which our economy has stayed afloat. And so this entire bond market that we have today is essential to maintaining the health of our economy. And yet its underlying structure somewhat weirdly is extremely creaking old and somehow insulated to innovation. The first part of your question gets to the manifestation of how this conflict plays out in practice. And unfortunately, the bond market as we see it today is inefficient in very many different ways. So let me start firstly with the equity market as a comparison. Our equity markets in the US are amongst, if not the most liquid markets In the world, securities trading today happens in nanoseconds and milliseconds. We have enormous amounts of price efficiencies that are visible throughout our marketplace. From the standpoint of regulation, that efficiency is super useful. Equity prices are incredibly informative for regulators. They're incredibly useful for investors. For example, those that might be thinking about a possible takeover to look at equity prices as a lever to do that. In addition, securities class actions is often rely on prices, price changes as a trigger for potential actions and scrutiny. But broadly, securities prices provide that insight into a company, how it's doing, the present value of its future cash flows, and do so using enormous amounts of data. That comes from the fact that the equity claim, the common share, is standard. It's super tradable. So, of course, it is traded in these incredible markets that we have today. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said for the bond market. The bond market today is incredibly illiquid. It is not a market in which we traditionally trade on platforms. Instead, this is a market which is an over-the-counter market by and large. There is some platform trading, but it's limited. It's an over-the-counter market. Here, dealers are the big banks that are the ones that intermediate the trades. They connect buyers with sellers. They charge a hefty sum for doing so. Some bonds, in fact, most bonds don't trade at all. Only the most high-rated bonds tend to trade. And even in that case, they don't trade very often. Most bonds don't trade every day. So we have a marketplace in which 
we have this extreme irony between its importance and the fact that investors cannot get the basic entitlement, which is to be able to trade cheaply, easily, reliably, and transparently on this market. As a result of this lack of trading, a number of bad consequences arise. Firstly, investors are stuck with the risk, first and foremost. Beyond that, of course, is the fact that prices don't work as well as they should, as in event horizon window into what the company is doing. We don't have as much trading. The investors that might have used trading as a threat against the company to promote good corporate governance, as Admati and Flyderer talk about in the context of equity in the Wall Street Walk, we can't do that as easily in bond markets. Prices are not that informative and the bond market isn't that liquid. I think it has a number of negative externalities, as my co-author and I talk about, as Jonathan and I talk about. And the problem of this brokenness goes much deeper, we argue, into the heart of corporate governance. And that ultimately is economically very wasteful, given how big and important the corporate bond market is. I'd like to turn to that idea of brokenness in the context of corporate governance. At the top of the conversation, you mentioned that the equity side of the capital markets probably gets a disproportionate amount of the scholarly attention as compared to the bond markets. And that's probably true of the corporate governance literature as well. Could you talk a little bit about the role of bondholders in corporate governance and what this trade-off between tailorability and liquidity might mean for their ability to contribute efficiently to corporate governance? Thank you. Thanks for that question, Andrew. I, I think here I would like to highlight the work of some awesome scholars that I'm sure you've spoken to know about who've written about the fact that bondholders tend to be really apathetic investors. Mitu Gulati at Virginia, Anna Gelpern, Ed Rock, Marcel Kahan, Bill Bratton, are just tremendous scholars who have energized this field. And they've spoken and written about extensively the fact that bondholders are incredibly apathetic, passive investors. And that's always bothered me because they shouldn't be, right? In theory, they really shouldn't be. The standard paradigm in bond markets is that bond investors are very institutional, sophisticated investors. This is traditionally contrasted with the equity market, where we put the retail mom and pop investor as being the paradigmatic investor in that space. But in bond markets, we look at the institutional, sophisticated investor as being the paradigm. So why are they so passive? Right? Why are they so apathetic? And as Ed Rock and Marcel Kahan wrote in a paper a couple of years ago, bondholders have traditionally been apathetic investors. They've been traditionally passive, even though they should be exercising a governance role through their contract. They tend not to do that. Ed and Marcel point to a slightly interesting dynamic that has arisen over the past couple of years, which is the rise of hedge funds that have been opportunistic and exploiting bond contracts. So some enforcement is being done, but it's being done by a set of very self-interested opportunistic actors that are looking for, as Marcel and Ed talk about, technical defaults to agitate for payouts for themselves rather than good long-term corporate governance outcomes. Traditionally, the bondholder should be seen as being an engaged investor. It's facing two different kinds of agency costs. It has a contract with entitlements that are mapped out in it. The investors are sophisticated investors. But unfortunately, as a result of the brokenness of this market, investors today in general are just super passive, super apathetic, 
and tend not to enforce their claims. Now, unfortunately, what that means is that the normal investor in bond funds or in the BlackRock bond ETF is not going to get the kind of protection that they should because the incentives to enforce these bond contracts is pretty limited. And we just don't have the kind of corporate governance heft that should be exercised being actually exercised by our very passive bond investors. So that essentially is the problem that's reflected in the brokenness of this market. You've made the case that the bond market is broken, which I think raises the question of, is there any way that we could possibly fix it? Do you and your co-author have any ideas for how some of these problems could be addressed? You know, we're trying to not just be negative Nellies in this paper and very lucky and fortunate to get to co-author with Jonathan, who is a finance bro. And we get to then think about markets in the way that finance bros tend to think about markets. And we've come up with a market-based solution at the end, which is to say that, look, let's try and create a space in which bonds are tradable. So we have come up with an idea that states basically that we create tiers of standard form bond contracts. And these tiers vary in the intensity of the covenants that they have. So you can have one tier, which is a very easy tier for highly rated companies with fewer covenants. And that's the kind of standard for that tier. We might have, for example, some very basic maintenance covenants, some very basic event-based restrictions. And that is one tier. Then we have a second and a third and a fourth tier that gets more and more intense given how risky a company is. And what we hope through this idea is that greater standardization within these tiers means that these contracts become more tradable. The claim becomes more standard. It becomes easier to assess. Hopefully, it becomes easier to price. And so there's a standardization component here, but there's also some tailoring in the choice of the tier itself. So you're tailoring based on the tier. You take a riskier tier depending on the riskier issuer, but within that tier, the claim is standard. That's the first part of our solution. In its second part, it's a law review, so we need to have three parts, obviously. In its second part, we have made the proposal that bond platforms, to the extent that we start becoming more electronic, as seems to be the case, that bond platforms play a role in enforcement. Today, Andrew, bond enforcement is crap because the indenture trustee, that trustee that's supposed to represent bondholders in the bond market, just doesn't do anything. Steve Schwartz and others have written about this, that indentured trustees in our marketplaces that are supposed to cure some of the collective action costs that bondholders face in public markets, that these bond trustees just don't do anything. What we're trying to do is create platforms that are more incentivized to act on behalf of bondholders. They can contract with bondholders to provide these services, to act as indentured trustees to monitor. Why we do this is because platforms have played a quasi-regulatory role in our marketplace for eons, in fact, since before regulation even came about. So what we're doing here is trying to harness that model and apply it to bond markets to make platforms a kind of indentured trustee going forward as a way to better monitor and enforce bond claims. Now, the final part of our solution is basically allowing for maximum tailorability, which means that we retain what is currently in place in some ways, that bondholders can still engage with an issuer, craft a really detailed, super intense contract if they want, and they accept the fact that this contract is not going to be tradable. That's cool. 
And why they do this is because they want that tailorability. They want to be able to enforce. And what we hope then is that very engaged bondholders get into this space. They tailor with the issuer. They're ready to monitor and enforce. And the rest of the market can benefit from their efforts. So we hope that they engage in governance, that they are able to promote that discipline, and the rest of the market can free ride off some of their gains. Conversely, in the standard market, in the more standard market, there's greater trading, there's greater price informativeness, and that price informativeness can then be useful for the rest of the market as a whole. That, in effect, is our solution. We want to have three parts, and these parts work together to create a kind of whole market solution for the bond market. With the problem and some of the solutions identified, are there any closing thoughts that you'd like listeners to have from the paper or from this conversation? And are there maybe some open questions you hope to answer in the future? I think that the closing thoughts that I would like us to think about is to really ask ourselves why we have neglected the bond market for so long. The traditional assumption that bondholders are sophisticated institutional investors is fine, right? We can work off of that assumption. But so are equity investors. So are investors in other markets, sophisticated and institutional. But somehow, the bond market has always received a short shrift in policy and regulation in terms of the attention devoted to it to ensure that bondholders are properly protected against the risks that they face. The goal of this paper is trying to remedy some of that lack of attention, and to draw out the fact that our bond market is structurally incapacitated to protect bond markets and bondholders. So what we really need to do, I think, and what you know, Jonathan and I have written about here, is to try and create some attention to take a first step, to really focus our minds and policymakers' minds on thinking about this as a whole market problem, of the bond market being itself broken, of bad habits becoming institutionalized in this market, bad trading practices, a lack of investor appetite for activism, and to try and remedy this because the costs of not doing so are massive. These are not just dollar costs, but they are deeper than that in terms of the inability of bond markets to create a main street that uses capital efficiently and effectively as a means to power growth going forward particularly as we emerge from the pandemic with corporate balance sheets being extremely indebted in the aftermath, particularly in the riskier credits. I think coming up with a solution to the brokenness of the bond market is something that should be an imperative for policymakers. Our guest today has been Yesha Yadav, professor of law at Vanderbilt University. We've discussed her article, The Broken Bond Market, which she co-authored with Jonathan Brogard, professor of finance at the University of Utah. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Yesha, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Andrew, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to get to have this conversation with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.